1: chapter 2, and verse 15. I'm reading for the New American Standard tonight. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Things are happening so quick right now that you're going to experience what you think is condemnation, but it's really shame. And it's a shame of not knowing the word of God and I'm not here to condemn anybody, I'm not here to use a bully pulpit, but I'm here to put a burning bush under your tukus, hallelujah, as they say in Yiddish, (laughs) that you need to start memorizing and knowing the Word of God. And not just studying what you want to feel good about. Okay? You need to start learning the entire counsel of God right now. And I'm telling you as a brother in Christ there is a battle that we must engage in in the days ahead and the only thing that's going to keep you from being deceived or led astray down a dead end path is by knowing the word of God. One reason we need to know the word of God is not just to produce His faith but it produces for the but to produce in us a confidence for the judgment day. In the gospel of John Jesus said that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. But then the son says, It's not I who will judge you on that day, but the words I speak will judge you. So it's the word of God that we're going to stand before on the judgment day. Come on, folks. And all the answers are in the book already. Now, I was a professor at Old Roberts University and teaching, whatever, not a big deal. And I decided on a midterm exam. uh, everybody was taking notes feverishly and acted like they were good students. I decided to see if people were really listening to what I was saying. So on the midterm exam, I put all of the answers. I wrote the exam. So I put all the answers to the test in my lecture that day. I even added phrases like, make sure you pay attention to page 119. Make sure you understand this date here. And I just thought, well, I should have pretty much 90% of the students, you know, pass with flying colors. Guess what? Less than 30% of the people made see or higher. What's the first commandment in the Bible? The first thing they asked Jesus, what's the number one commandment? What did he say? Hear. Hear, O Israel. And that is the problem in the church today because we think with a Western mind, the Jewish mind thinks in the forest, we think of what trees are in the forest. We need to start thinking with a mentality that Jesus is Jewish, okay? All the the writers of the Bible are Jewish. Even Luke was a proselyte to Judaism. We need to think in what Jesus says. What is the number one commandment? We think, oh, the number one commandment is to love God. That is not the number one commandment. See, we divorce from the scriptures what we want to know. The number one commandment is, hear, O Israel, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can you love God with all of your heart if you're not listening to him? Come on. Amen? Everybody can hear the sound of my voice, but are you really listening? Deuteronomy 28 says, all these blessings shall overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Have you heard that text before, Deuteronomy 28? 28? The blessing and curses, yes, no, okay. Well, that's not exactly what King James should be saying, or in the American translation, okay, because God wrote, have the Bible written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and not English. It's when Martin Luther started studying Greek and Hebrew that he caused the Reformation to happen in Europe. And most of us are so addicted with entertainment we don't have time to even read our Bibles, much less study the original languages. Come on, folks, come on, hallelujah. You know, today, most people don't even bring their Bibles to church. You know why? Because we have the PowerPoint. There's no power in it, so what's the point? So what I want to produce inside of you by the Holy Spirit is a desire, an unquenchable thirst to get to know the macros of the Bible. Not just memorize scriptures, okay, but to understand the macro. Because if you understand, what's more important, the fruit on the tree or the root? See, we're going to produce fruit for Jesus. And he says, you're forgetting, because of your arrogance, the fat, rich root of the olive tree, which is your Jewish heritage. Interesting, isn't it? And so it says here that we need not be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. Because most of us are like men who buy a new vacuum cleaner for their wife, and she says, honey, please put it, back, put it together. And, we, know, real men don't read the instructions. We just put it together like we think it is. And that's how many leaders are building churches today. We'll just put it together the way we think it should happen, then we ask God to bless it. And we plug it in the wall, and the whole thing blows up. Or catches on fire. Goes on and says here, verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. You don't, we don't need to know the original language of that one, do we? Unless you live a sanctified lifestyle, you're not going to understand where we're going with this. There will be a blindness, a dullness of heart come upon you, and the light will be too bright. Verse 20 talks about cleansing ourselves. Verse 21, verse 23, very interesting, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Folks, there are going to be people that are going to be in opposition to the word of God. They may come to their senses, verse 26, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So The enemy knows his time is short. And he's laid traps and snares for people. Linguistic key, Greek New Testament, talks about the snare of the devil and being held captive is to be duped by evil influences. The way the enemy dupes the believers by evil influences is number one, he numbs the conscience. Number two, he confuses your senses. And then number three, he'll paralyze your will. People do not backslide overnight. I'll repeat that. Number one, he dupes us by evil influences. That's why I'm very strong about what you watch on TV, what you listen to, what you expose your family to. Amen? I think the greatest entertainment is casting out devils. Hallelujah. Smoking out those snakes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah taking foxes and lighting them on fire and sending them back into the Philistine fields. That to me is entertainment. <laughs> so how does the devil, why does he dupe us with evil influences? Number one, to numb the conscience. He wants to confuse the conscience. And out of that, he then paralyzes the will. And you become a bloated, beached walrus on the sea. On, not in the water, but on The sand, that can't do nothing. And that's what he wants in this hour. The enemy does not play fair. He does not go by the Geneva Convention. And so it continues. Now, I want to share this with you. When you start studying the Bible, there is no chapters and verses in the original text. That was put there by the redactors for reference purpose. So many times say, okay, Brother Scott says we need to start studying the Bible afresh, okay? And to get out of 52-week, you know, know, read five chapters a day, and in a year you'll have the Bible done. Don't do it. Please, don't do it. Because who says, this is a letter written to Timothy, who says that we're supposed to stop in chapter 2 and verse 26 right now? Just because chapter 3 begins, we stop? Hello, come on. So it continues, chapter three, verse one, but realize this, that in difficult, in the last days, difficult or dangerous times will come. We're living in that, hey, right now. Yeah. We went to the supermarket today, and I just looked around, and I just saw the way the people dress, and the tattoos, and, and the paganism, and what is happening in our culture. We're living in that time right now. The first thing is, men will be loved themselves. There's a fierce designer Christianity going on right now. People want to design the scriptures to what they want. It goes on and says here, lovers of money, <laughs> boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gospels, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Look at this, verse 4, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure among the lovers of God. If you have a burning desire to get in your boat instead of going to church to a prayer meeting, something is wrong. You are being duped by evil influences. And I'm not holding back from it, folks, because I know we're in war. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although denied its power, avoid such men as these. The Greek word for avoid is to run away in horror. The true horror houses is not on Halloween night some haunted house, okay, make-believe stuff. It's houses of religion where people want to have their ears tickled. Yeah. That is the worst deception right now. I don't want my ears tickled. I want my, I want my sternum to belly button o- cut open with the Word of God. Hallelujah. And God to give me a royal flush. Amen? Yeah. Oh! I don't want my will. Now it goes on here in chapter and verse 10 but you follow my teaching conduct purpose faith perseverance okay verse 12 indeed all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted evil men impostors will proceed from bad doors deceiving being deceived so we see this build up of the last days can you say we're living in that right now amen so what does Paul tell Timothy a young apostle Paul is about to be executed he's handing off the baton of the leadership of the church to Timothy, what does he tell him to do? Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, underlying that, sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed, woo! Or inspired for God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. The word "equipped" there is a completely outfitted rescue boat in the ancient Roman navy. Hallelujah! A coast guard cutter. Hallelujah! Yeah. And he charges us, verse two of chapter four: Preach this word. So we think it's just the message of the gospel, the message of the Pauline epistles, the revelation. The word scripture, when used by Paul, who's Jewish, is the Hebrew word Tanakh. Say that, Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym. It means the three letters, okay, Torah, Nabi'im, Kotevim. It means the law, the writings, and the prophets. At this time, the New Testament was not even written yet. So we're talking about what is going to save us from this implosion of our culture in these last days is to be wise in understanding the Old Testament. And most Christians are totally lost without a compass when they try to read the Old Testament. They read Proverbs, they read Psalms, read a few stories, you know, it's nice, okay, well the prophets are pretty heavy, you know, but we live in a new dispensation. What God dispenses himself, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, I have Bible school teachers that need to resign and go back to school themselves. They say you've got to read the whole Bible, Matthew to Revelation. You see people now pigeonhole themselves into a message, God is good all the time, God is good. Well, God's definition of his goodness is different than our definition of goodness. The only thing old about the Old Testament is the sacrificial law. But there is whole segments of Isaiah, of Nahum. When's the last time you read Nahum? That have yet to be fulfilled yet. Go with me to Second Peter now. And folks, you, whether God tickles you to get learning this out of curiosity and desire for him or a fear of being ashamed before him, you've got to start propping up your Bible study time and digging in, amen, and not just memorizing scripture, but understand what king prophesied during Isaiah's time and who was also an adjunct prophet during Isaiah. Come on, folks, are you with me? Understand the divided monarchy. Understand the, the uh the geography of the holy land, understand these things that happened in broad strokes of history because Paul says it's for our instruction, 1 Corinthians says. Now look at what Peter says. Peter says something here, I don't even think we've even fathomed it. I want to fathom it. 2 Peter. Oh, hallelujah. Verse 16. He's about to be martyred. 2 Peter. Verse 1, chapter 16, Peter says this. He's passing on the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And verse 16, we do not follow cleverly by tales tales made known to you. The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I do not want to follow tales about Smith Wigglesworth. I don't want to follow tales about some Yahoo I never met. Because I guarantee, I say something 10 people later, the Volkswagen is purple with red Beetle bug stickers on it. I never said that. my people the jewish people are in total place a prison camp of unbelief because they followed the oral law not the written law they came up with what's called rabbinical judaism and rabbinical judaism believes that when moses was on sinai he received torah biktav and torah balpei i mean i'm trying to start speaking hebrew here like i guess say in english they believe that he received two sets of commandments. One was the written law, Biktav, and Baal Pei with the mouth, or oral law. And so they have chosen to follow the oral law. When I witness the Jewish people, I tell them, show me anywhere in the prophets, anywhere that they say to Israel, return to the oral law, and I'll become an Orthodox Jew today. They can't, it's not there. They're with me, folks. But they have built up a system that has kept them in a prison camp. They believed what they wanted to believe. And so Peter's saying we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. I want to know the word of God. I want to know Jesus, okay? And when you see ministries and Christians falling away and lawlessness, as I wrote a book on, don't get all mad and throw in the towel and say, well, I'm going to forget about God. I'm going to go fishing. No, that's an opportunity for you to get closer to Jesus, Then it goes on to verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, we were with him on the holy mountain. Now those who don't know, let me just tell you what this is. This is the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop in northern Israel, okay? He was up there to be encouraged, Elijah and Moses. The law and the prophets, okay, appeared before him. God appeared in the cloud. Can you imagine being in a revival meeting like that? Jesus was transfigured in all his glory. How many people would like to be in a meeting like that? And Peter got so shocked and scared, extremely frightened, that he, re, he reverted back to an older operating system and says, Oh, okay, Lord, we'll build three tabernacles for you one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God says, Be quiet, listen to my son. See, whenever man sees the glory of God, sees God who he really is, they always want to build something. That's our problem. This is my beloved son, on whom I'm well pleased. Verse 19 is the most amazing scripture in the New Testament. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and a morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Tanakh, or the scripture, is a matter of one's own interpretation. Whoa. Folks, we've got to dissect this real quick. Even though Peter saw the Father and the Son, come on, transfigured in all their glory, the most incredible theophany anywhere in the Bible that supersedes even Mount Sinai. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! How about that for a prophetic event? But Peter says we have a more sure prophetic word than that. Are you here to, to see something or are you here to learn something? Are you here for a word, or are you here for experience? So most of the revival meetings now, I'm coming, oh, let's hear what that crazy Jew says, or let's go and get a healing, let's go get a touch, let's go, you know, splish, splash, I'm taking a bath, let's go swim in the river, whatever, let's go doing that, let's go get whatever, come on. And folks, we don't understand that we're really not digging into the word because the amount of word being preached by most ministers I listen to is about that shallow. I can't even hear a bath in that. Yeah. They get one scripture and they run with it. Or they'll pull things out of context, bead together a nice beautiful necklace, okay? Folks, that is not. Yeah. Come on, it says here that if things are going to get so dark, verse 19 that we're going to need light in this hour, and the only light is not a theophany on a mountaintop with the Lord, but is the prophetic word of the Scriptures. Specifically speaking, the Hebrew prophets. Embedded in the Hebrew prophets is our light for this dark hour. Woo! That's why you've got to start memorizing or at least getting a very strong grip on who the prophets are. Folks, I'm here to encourage you. Come on. Well, we don't want to do homework. Okay, be stupid. Be lazy. Be a bum. Let the devil eat your lunch. We don't have time, folks. Come on. We're at war right now. Have you not noticed that? And you're going to have to get a handle. You're going to have to start memorizing the Bible. You're going to have to start getting the word inside of you. If we don't get our act together, the cloud's going to lift off us. He's going to start moving to other nations and other people's groups, okay, and we're going to persecute them thinking we know it all. Because I'm very acutely aware of a people group that has Ichabod all over them. That's the Jewish people. That's why they wear black and mourn all the time. Because they had the glory and they lost it. I ain't about to learn what my stiff neck, leather-neck relatives missed. Smile tonight. This is good news. Paul, the, listen, the, the gospel that Paul preached, he didn't have Timothy written. He didn't have all these things. Where did Paul get this message That came with such signs and wonders. You read the book of Acts. It came out of Isaiah. It came out of Micah. It came out of Jeremiah. Come on, folks. So you get a Bible that when you read in the New Testament, say in Romans 9, and suddenly an Old Testament passage is quoted, okay, it's either italicized or in all fonts or bold, Get a Bible that shows that so you can look it up and read.
0: Hallelujah.
1: If not, you're going to preach your own gospel, you're going to form your own gospel, and only, God will only confirm his word, not our word. And ever since I've been doing this, folks, we've seen three people raised from the dead. And I'm not going to go make a tape series about it and get on some Christian broadcasting and put it, our name in life because I don't want to lose the anointing. Every Christian should be raising the dead right now. Hallelujah. Every Christian should be doing exploits. Because that's not us. It's his word. This is incredible. Verse 21, it says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by God spoke by the Holy Spirit, spoke by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This word here, talking about being moved, is the same Greek word used of a Northeastern that shipwrecked and destroyed Paul's ship on the island of Malta. Remember that? That force of that wind, that northeaster, is what drove these men in the Old Testament to write these things down. And this is our morning starlight, and the devil does not want you to know these prophetic passages that combine into the New Testament, and not just the New Testament, they speak of the day of eschatology we're moving into. Hallelujah. Number one. The biggest mistake, number one, without knowing the Old Testament. Number two, second biggest mistake is replacement theology, that the church replaced Israel. That, folks, is vomit. That is a trick of the devil. Look at chapter two and verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people as there be false teachers. How did false prophets and false teachers get among us? Very simple. At one time, they were good prophets, And one time they were good teachers. Okay, so we see here a tremendous emphasis placed on the Hebrew prophets. Not just for knowing who we are in Christ and the gospel message, but for the days ahead. Are you with me tonight? If we do not know these prophecies, we're not going to have the light to make it through in this dark hour. That alone should motivate you to study like never before, to get up your Bible and start studying, okay? Maybe get some different type of books, the history of Israel by Bright or whoever, and start understanding the scope of history that was given to us.
0: Oh, hallelujah.
1: Glory to God. you have got some homework to do. Hallelujah. So do I.
0: I love it. <laughs> hallelujah. I love the <laughs> word. Just alive.
1: <sighs> you say, how long should I read the Bible every day? Until it reads you. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Now, who in the Bible is also known as the morning star? Exactly. Isaiah 14 talks about Lucifer being cut down to the earth, a star of the morning. So if he was a star of the morning... He doesn't want you to gain his name that he lost. He doesn't want you to study the Old Testament morning star scriptures. Because Jesus said, he who overcomes, I'll give the morning star. And the final name Jesus takes upon himself as a conqueror is, I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the bright morning star. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what is the morning star? The morning star in Israel was a phenomenon that happens in the deserts where right before the sun comes up, the planet Venus comes up, and it's just at certain times of the year so bright that you think the sun is coming up. It gives you just enough light to break the camp, get the camels ready, okay? And then what comes next is the sun itself. Very interesting, isn't it? So the morning star light gives you enough light to get ready because once the sun comes up, it is hot quickly there in the desert. 45 Celsius plus, okay? Without any shade. So what Peter is saying here is that the morning star passages, when we start seeing these passages of the prophets giving us light, guess who's coming next? The sun himself. So the key to the morning star passages in the Bible is the book of Ezekiel, the three R's. You can write this down. The three R's is, number one, the return of the Jewish people back to their ancient homeland. Has that happened? Yes, it has. Big time. Big time. Over 70 nations, Jewish people have immigrated. Okay, number two, the restoration of the land. Today, Israel is one of the largest exporters of fruit and citrus fruit, citrus fruits and flowers, technology. It's amazing what's happening in that desert land. And we're about in the third morning star fulfillment, which is the redemption of the Jewish people themselves. Hallelujah. Glory to God. We're right in that moment now. So let's start studying some of these passages about what God is saying in these last days. Go with me to the book of Genesis. That was all introduction. You're doing great. I think the biggest thing I see when I travel with ministers and leaders and bishops and deacons and Christians or whatever is people really don't know the word of God. I'm shocked. I'm really, I'm shocked. I'm in a state of shock that people don't even know how to find a book in the Bible, much less a scripture. Because when Paul preached or Jesus preached, they spoke midrashically. They would say, does not the scripture say, and they'll quote a half a verse, and everybody, all the audience could quote the whole book. Because they were people of the book. So let me tell you what happened. I was at our church, every time I try to implement something, God slaps me down. I went to a church growth seminary, as I mentioned to you, and we were all taught how to grow churches and big churches and all that stuff, whatever. But inside of me, I don't have it in me. I'd rather be in a cave, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) The cave of Adullam with a bunch of misfits that become David's mighty warriors, amen? Than grow a bunch of diapers Milk Toast Babies. And we think in the West because what's the offering? You know, nickels and noses. How big was the offering? How, how many people were there Sunday morning? That's success. Folks, that is not success. God likes to whittle them down to 300 Gideons, okay? Warriors. <laughs> and so I'm going through this and, and I'm saying, okay, whatever you want to do, do it. And so we're in a worship in the Sunday morning, and I'm looking at a a big banner like this on the wall, my family next to me, and the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I'm looking at that, right at the bottom there's Hebrew letters, and I'm looking at the Hebrew letters, just worshiping God, and suddenly, out of the Hebrew letters comes Jesus. Whew. And I wasn't eating too many mushrooms the night before, okay? Jesus comes out of the letters, folks. And he steps off the stage and comes to me and points his finger at me and says, build my house of glory. And then he disappeared. And in a nanosecond, every scripture about temple, synagogue, house, church, (laughs) went right through me. And my wife sensed the presence of the Lord and she looked at me and said, what happened to you? I said, I just got a message for the next 20 years. And now you know I'm, why I'm like this, okay? <laughs> and when he said that to me, I, I felt like I knew nothing. After 23 years of ministry, full-time ministry, I know nothing. Hallelujah. I said, Lord, I need help. Because I went to school and spent all those thousands of dollars to build something Then I'm afraid, is that what you want? Help. So the first scripture he and he's been giving me a little by little, every day, every week. The first thing that came to him was the book of Genesis, chapter
0: twenty-eight. Here we go. Are you ready?
1: Genesis 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went to Haran. Remember again, if you want to build his house, his New Testament church, you don't start at Matthew. You start at Genesis. And so as he was taken off from his brother, in verse 12 it says he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, Elohei, Avraham, Yitzhak, the land in which you lie, I'll give it to you and to your descendants. Hallelujah. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. The new thing God is doing is we don't know what he's doing. It's only when you go outside the camp, okay, away from the crowd and all the voices, and you cry out in your weakness, that's when he'll show you the next step. Amen. Hallelujah. And so it says here, in verse 17, he was afraid. Number two, you will know when God speaks to you, but you will be afraid. And God is restoring into his church the fear of the Lord once again. Don't play games, folks, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And it goes on and says here that he called this place Bethel in verse 19. And he made a vow, 20 through 22, that Lord, if you bring me back to this place, I'll give you a tenth of everything. Yeah. Okay? So, those folks that preach tithings not from God, okay, are a hamburger short of a Happy Meal. They didn't take their medication, okay? They are off. Because automatically, when you have a theophany with God, you'll want to give to Him. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Come on, folks. And so I'm studying and God says, read it again. So I read it, read it again, read it again, read it again. Finally the elevator came to the top floor and I got it. (laughs) Now he called the place Bethel. What does Bethel mean in Hebrew? Correct, house of God, okay. But did he see a house? Just read it again, did he see a house? Did he see a sanctuary? Did he see a building?
0: So why do you call it a house of God?
1: Real simple. We in the West think a house is a house Mm -hmm. with an address with four walls and a roof. Their concept, the house of God, is a home where you live. Meaning Bethel is where God wants to sojourn. It's where God wants to live. It's the very gate of heaven. It's not a four walls, folks. The house of God is where God dwells and lives. Meaning when we gather together, we're not gathering under a banner, a denomination, a creed, an idea, okay? We are gathering where the gate of heaven opens up that we are actually the guardians of that threshold experience. And the more you fill your head with TV and newspaper and all these other things, you're going to be carnal and you're going to do exactly what the Jewish people did. They did not want to have a house of God. They wanted a king instead. So the house of God is the gate. The threshold. Now, Josiah's revival, you can just write this down, Second Chronicles chapter 34. In Josiah's revival, they found the book of the law. He broke down all the Asherim and the temples and all, you know, and the male cult of prostitutes. Thank God for him. Hallelujah. Run the sodomites out. Amen? Yeah. Of the house of God. Amen? Come on. Hallelujah. Yeah, and then he got the Levites and he set them up. One translation says doorkeepers. Actually, in Hebrew it, it is the guardians of the threshold. Because he understood the job of the priest is to insecure, come on, hallelujah, secure and guard that open heaven experience over God's people. My ancestors, I'm a Levite, my ancestors, okay, were guardians or custodians of the glory realm. Our job was to faithfully administer the text, okay, to faithfully keep the covenant, to faithfully guard this realm, faithfully gather the tithes of God. Come on, folks. We are the guardians of this realm. And so the enemy comes in with his pride and says, you know what, we got to stop this because if they get into the open open spot where the glory comes out, we're going to lose them. We're going to lose a whole civilization. we got to get them... Inflated with pride that they're not priests, but rather kings. And so the enemy has successfully come into the camp and says, "You know, we are kings and priests unto Jesus," From Revelation chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, gong Mistranslation. We are not kings and priests. We are a kingdom of priests. So anything you hear about dispensationalism, kingdom theology, dominion theology, throw it out the window, folks. It is not from God. Anyway, moving right along. Yes. Somebody here is receiving. Hallelujah. Now let's talk about that. The problem with kings is that they're territorial. The problems with kings, they don't get along with other kings. The problem of kings is that they rule and reign. The problem of kings, they demand tithes. They enslave God's people. God never wanted a kingdom of kings. Go to the book of Hebrews now. Let me open this up. So in studying this, I'm saying, Lord, if I preach this, I may not be invited back. He says, you work for me or you work for them. I work for you, Lord. Hallelujah. So the problem with the glory of God being resident inside his people and in his house, which we are his house, has always been the kingship monarchy pattern. So if we can understand the basis of what God said, okay, (laughs) we'll understand how the New Testament church is supposed to operate. Hebrews chapter eleven verse thirty-two, Hall of Fame of Faith of these Hebrew, Jewish people, Israelites, etc. Without even Jesus being resurrected from the dead, they did the exploits. I like it. But verse thirty-two, what more shall I say? For a time will fail me if I speak of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Shmuel, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered. King. Wait, 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 wait a minute here. Notice he says, Samuel and the prophets. The writer of Hebrews just skips over 400 years of Israelite monarchy history. You're exactly right, sister. Not a single king is mentioned. Hold on to that thought. You're good, brother. Hold on. This is heavy, folks. The writer of Hebrews just spoke 400 years of monarchy history, totally didn't make it in. Josiah didn't make it. Uzziah, Yotam, some good kings. Hezekiah, they didn't even make it in. Not even a reference to them. Go with me to the book of Judges. So the pattern we see is Joshua comes out of the promised land. He passes away. Go to the book of Judges, chapter 2, for the sake of time. Right after the book of Joshua, the promised land, okay, Yehoshua in Hebrew, it's like Yeshua. It's a form of the name of Jesus. He's a deliverer, glory to God. And he dies in chapter 2 and verse 11. So, without a prophetic leadership of deliverance going on, the people always revert back into what they feel good. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, this is just one generation removed from coming out of Egypt. What is Baal worship? You're going to have to understand this. This is a central theme in the prophets. Baal worship in Hebrew is Baal. Say that, Baal. Baal means husband or master in Hebrew. My wife says to me Baali. I like it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> My master. <laughs> okay. It's a funny joke in Hebrew. Anyway. So Baal came into Israel so quickly, not just in the time of the judges, but in the time of who? Jezebel. Why would these people who had the covenants, custodians of the glory realm, fall so easily into bed with an adulterous harlot spirit? Very simple. Baal, in Hebrew, was also an ancient Canaanite storm god. Along the Phoenician coastline, northern Israel, They worshiped what was called Baal. And Baal, Baal, was the one, the thunder god. He came in, he rode on the wings of the the storm, and he brought the rains to an agricultural semi-arid society, okay? They need rain or they don't survive. And so what Baal worship was, and especially Jezebel made it very enticing, was, you know, you can worship, you Israelites, our gods are very similar. You could pray to Baal. And he can bring the rains, and your crops will grow, prosperity will ensue, but you don't have to live by all these stipulations of the law of Moses. So today, Baal worship is still in the church. It's prosperity without the message of death and the cross. All these things God could do. Let it rain, let it pour. Come on, open the floodgates of heaven for what? So you take up your cross, excuse me, today, your execution stake, Uh, how about electric chair, hallelujah, and follow me. You say, well, I don't hear that preached on TV because most of the TV preachers, come on, folks, they preach a message what people want to hear and people give money to. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. So Baal worship. Is asking God for blessings, but not living according to stipulations of the law, which today is, give me prosperity. My name is Jimmy. I'll take all you can give me, Lord. But don't preach that heavy cross message to me. If you want to get really messed up for life in a good way, I encourage you to get a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a man who was killed in a Nazi concentration camp that stood up to Hitler and wrote these letters while he was in prison about what discipleship is really all about. I've gotten to page 63, and I cannot go any further. That's how deep and powerful the book is. I encourage you to read it. Hallelujah. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. You can just go to, you know, Barnes & Noble, whatever, CBD, Christian book distributors, type it in. The cost of disciples, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you can order it, and it will. <laughs> the problem is, our God is comfort. But Paul says, we die daily. If you could find the sweet spot of dying but living. Come on. Whoa. Yeah. Hallelujah. And so they, they served the Baals. And it says in verse 14, are you all still with me tonight? I know you are. You're listening really good. Judges 2, 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them to the hands of their plunderers who plundered them and sold them to the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Quit blaming everything on the devil. And as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. <laughs> distressed in, in English is stress times two, okay? Then the Lord raised up what? Judge. Judge. Judges who did what? Deliver them. them. It's the Hebrew word, same word for Yeshua, deliverance. Yep. So this is what happened. They fell into sin, Okay? Because of the oppression that came, they began to cry out. Not just pray, folks. Began to cry out. Notice God did not send Moses as a deliverer, a type of Jesus, into Egypt until the people cried out. But it took 400 years for them to cry out. I would have cried out after four weeks. God does not send your deliverance to you until you cry out like the woman with an issue of blood. And you better start crying out, okay? You better start getting emotional for Jesus. Because I got a scripture here that will knock your socks off. It blew me away when I read it. I wrote an email on it. It says in 1 Corinthians, the last chapter, Paul says, let everyone who does not love the Lord Jesus be anathema, accursed. Guess what the word love is? It's not agape, it's phileo. Everyone who does not have an emotional Friend-type love for Jesus, let him be accursed. See, it's easy to love God with the agape that's already been part of our heart by the Holy Spirit. Our spirit can communicate to God. We're both born of love. Come on, think about it. But what about your soul and your mind? Ah, glory to God! Like you do at a hockey game or something. Come on, white folk, get stirred up here. Get your emotions going. Amen. There has to be something inside of you that makes you boil. Something tickles your fancy, ladies. Shopping, okay? Whatever, okay? Men, underwater basket weaving. I don't know. Something that you like to do, that you put energy into, that puts a jump in your step. Just translate that toward Jesus now. Yeah. Yeah. And so it says here that they screamed out, they cried out to God. And when that happened, verse 16, this is the key. The Lord raised up judges for them. Now, we have to again delete from our memory what the word judge really is. Because we have been hamstrung by Hellenism. Greco-Roman Hellas. our court system, our university system has been infiltrated and poisoned, diluted by that demonic spirit from hell. Called secular humanism, okay? And the essence of secular humanism is 666, which in Hebrew is WWW. 666 in Hebrew, it's the same letters, numbers in Hebrew is Vav Va Vav or 666 WWW. Don't throw away your Dell computers yet, okay? But just understand what's being said. Secular humanism is the spirit of Antichrist. There's many antichrists in this world, anti-anointed ones. And what's the anti-anointing? Anything that pulls down the glory realm into man-made centers. You're getting it, huh? You're getting it, come on. That's why seeker-sensitive Christianity is from the pit of hell. Bible says there's none that seek me. There's yes. none. Well, our church is growing. Are you growing a bunch of nursery, thumb sunken spineless Christians who can't even stand up the moral decay of this world? Or are you raising up Holy Ghost Rambos and Ramboettes? Oh, hallelujah. Real simple. Unless you have a strong contact point of intimacy with the Holy Spirit on a weekly basis, your minds will stay suspended in the cares of life, and you'll never overcome the lower nature. Yeah, that's right. yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, that doesn't happen by three or four Hillsongs, okay? And an offering, okay, teaching, and then 20-minute message, okay? And we go out and have cappuccino, Okay? That takes sometimes hours long. Moses was in the glory six days, and then God spoke to him on the seventh day. My house should be called a house of prayer or a house of PowerPoint with a waterfall sound. (laughs) Oh, Brother Scott, well, you know, we just need to, you know... Love people. Please, you're insulting my intelligence. God never said to make me a tabernacle so people could be comfortable with it. He gave Moses precise architectural renderings to make a place that God would be comfortable in and would fry any rebels that rebelled against him. That's the difference between the goats and the sheep, Okay. The sheep go, amen, and the ghost, but, but, pastor, but, but, and they eat anything. So write this down. The word judge in verse 16, if you can understand this, folks, you're doing great. The word judge in Hebrew is shoftim. Say that. Shoftim. It does not mean from our Hellenistic idea of legislation. It is not a judge. It is not a lawgiver. It is not a legislator. Okay. Judge in Hebrew means champion or military deliverer. Woo! <laughs> You've got, to, you've got to feed on this. We can't go over to this too fast. This is the central theme of everything in the Bible. Hallelujah. The people cried out because of sin, because of terrorists, the Midianites, whoever showed up. And God raised up a military champion, whether it be Gideon or Deborah. Come on, Hallelujah. Who had a special anointing to bring deliverance to God's people. And God never changed that pattern. Samuel was a judge. And the people rejected Samuel's ministry and they wanted a king. Let's keep on reading that. Whoa! Lord, help me tonight. Go to Samuel, First Samuel, Chapter Eight. And now you see why the Book of Hebrews ends right here and picks up again with the prophets. I'm sorry folks, I'm not here to entertain you. This is a matter of life and death. I'm going to appear before Jesus one day and so are you. I want him to say well done. I don't want him to say medium rare, okay? (laughs) I want him to say well done good and faithful. (laughs) And I'm reading things in the Bible that's totally opposite what I see happening in North American Christianity. Okay, and I've been real quiet about it for a long time, and God told me if I don't start preaching this, he'll kill me, okay? So I've decided to start preaching it, okay? You say, where is that in the Bible? God came to kill Moses. So it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king. And verse 6, it says... But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Shmuel, or Samuel, when they said, give us a king to judge us, or give us a king to help deliver us. And Samuel prayed to God, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. To have a king is to slap God in the face and go to bed with a harlot system. And whoever's a friend of the world or the nations is an enemy of God. Let's keep on going with this. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked of a king and said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots. Among his horsemen, they'll run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders, thousands, okay, et cetera, et cetera. 13, take your daughters, perfumers, cooks, bakers, okay. Verse 15, he'll take a tenth of your Amazing. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and said, no, but there will be a king over us. That we may be like all the other nations. Oh, we're not revelant to this generation. Let's, you know. That our king may judge us and go out. And fight our battles. And they chose a man. What was his name? Saul. Saul. You know what Saul means in Hebrew? Shaul. To ask for something. And the people got what they asked for. A big, tall, Benjamite warrior who had a prophetic anointing. Because he found the donkeys. Remember that? Who was a warrior king. We became a psychopath serial killer. And it's impossible for any Davids or Davidas, okay, to be raised up under that system to have a heart after God without being persecuted or try to be pinned against a wall with a javelin. Yeah, right. Let's fast forward 2006. God's called me to strengthen and encourage the local church. I've been to a lot of churches all over the place, preaching every revival center in America that's that's known, whatever. And I have come away lately weeping. Because very few places are able to continue with the glory of God, manifest glory of God moving. And I've asked the Lord why. He says that my people there, they love me, they're praying, they're really after me but I cannot pour new wine into an old wineskin. I cannot bless a structure that I myself have rejected. The third century of the church, Constantine supposedly got born again, but what he did is he changed the whole order of the local church, and he set up a system. The Roman Empire that crumbled after that actually metamorphosized into the church, the papal authority. Mm -hmm. And so today we have, and understand my heart here, don't throw the baby with the bathwater, just understand. We have really good men and women who really love God, but they set themselves up as king over the local church. Mm -hmm. And everybody else becomes slave labor under them. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has to kiss their ring. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has to call them, pastor or bishop or whatever. And we the kings are territorial folks. They do not get along with other kings. Kings have an anointing, but if an assistant rises up with a greater anointing, they will persecute that David. You say, what about David? I'm glad you asked. Let's study about David. <laughs> Go to 2nd Samuel now. And don't read into what I'm not saying. Just listen. I'm going very general terms here. Don't read in with your own experiential glasses what I'm saying here to justify something. Just listen, very elementary. This is the pattern God wanted to run his people with, and he never changed from it. Jesus appeared as a judge. As a show team, he anointed the 70. He anointed the 12 to go out and bring deliverance. This is what the early church did. But when people don't want the glory, they want a king instead. And that's why most of those churches are the largest, is because people want a Saul figure who has, quote, an anointing. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is coming back. Now, David's been anointed. To this point, David is a judge. He's a warrior. Hallelujah. He took out Goliath. Come on, folks. He's a warrior. He's anointed king, okay? But he's a man for God's own heart. But he was anointed as a type and shadow of Jesus to show the fallacy of the system, That no matter how much you have a heart after God, you will decay and fall back into the pattern that God hates. It's not your heart that's a problem. It's the system. It's what the people want. Woe be to us that we set up churches according to what the people want. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I don't care what you want. I don't care what I want. What does he want? Amen. Amen. So they come back in chapter 6 and verse 5. David and all the house of Israel are celebrating before the ark. So the manifest presence of God is coming back. The Hebrew word for celebrate is not this boring song, I will celebrate. Say unto the Lord. It's the Hebrew word, I will celebrate. In Hebrew, it's misahechet, it means to frolic and play like a child. The root is Isaac, laughter. Not just laughing, it's wild frolicking. It's use of kids playing on a playground in modern Hebrew. I've got five kids, hallelujah. That's why I want leaders to act, like a child, like that. Come on, hallelujah. I'm tired of all these reserved seating sections, okay? And Brother Tuhu and Sister who, whatever they're, and they are the most reserved, You know why they're so reserved? Because they're so used to being worshiped by their people, they can't worship God on their own. We're swinging for the fence. Come on, hallelujah. (laughs) Let no man take your crown. Jesus wants you with no middleman. Our job as fivefold ministry gifts is not to overlord you. But to push you into battle and equip you. I even had to change the terminology of the pastors and churches that associate to us now. I said, I'm not your covering. That's another fallacy of the kingship. Yeah. Nowhere in the Bible does it say a man or woman is your covering. Is literally the Hebrew word for covering is kippur, okay, which is the blood of Jesus, the Yom Kippur, sacrifice. Jesus is your covering. And the second time the word covering is used is husband over his wife. Come on, hallelujah. That's it. So I have used the word now platform. We'll be an apostolic platform to push you forward in battle, okay, for you to spring forward. But I got going to cover you. Because sometimes I'm not anointed, Okay. <laughs> And if you look to me all the time to fight your battle and always blow the shofar over you, you will become weak in your own prayer life. Yes, we need to be accountable. Come on. We need to obey our leaders. I'm not throwing the baby with the bathwater out, okay? But what is this? What is a leader? Listen carefully. Oh, your pastor's smiling. I like it. Come on. A leader is a New Testament judge or warrior, not an administrator. Most pastors I meet are nice guys that should be working for goodwill. (laughs) They're not warriors. They're not deliverers. They're spineless, mamby-pampy, barney The word pastor is only used once in the New Testament. We should be calling the leader of the local church, listen, bishops, overseers, elder. The apostles and prophets are the ones that ran the local churches. Oh, but we wanna call our senior pastor, assistant pastor. You say what you want, but what is your true function? You gonna sit here and just counsel people and be a nurse all the time, or are you gonna lead us into battle? Yeah. If you don't lead us into battle, then sit down and get in the back of the bus. And let somebody else drive this thing. Right. But I'm tired of getting around pastors who don't know the word of God and are not evangelistic. You say, you're being too hard. Oh, be quiet, you effeminate spirit in the name of Jesus. We've got to assess troop strength before we go into battle. And I ain't going to battle with somebody that's not equipped to be leading me into battle. That does not have an anointing to drive out devils and take on principalities and powers and to go and rescue the people crying out. Come on, folks, come on. You need to stay with me now. I'm going to open a Pandora's box. I'm going to show you scriptures and all this real soon. Come on, folks. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So David's rejoicing, frolicking, okay? In chapter 7 and verse 1, now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on the side of all of his enemies. That's the purpose of a New Testament judge or warrior is to bring rest To knock the snot out of the devil that attacks you and your family. To bring confusion to the Midianite encampment. Your pastor, your leader, your elder, okay, the people that are called to lead you into battle should be having dreams at night how to take on the sodomite community and the New Agers, okay? And to bring confusion to that camp of pedophiles. Come on, folks. Amen. And so David, in verse 2, the king said to Nathan, is Nathan a good prophet or bad prophet? It's okay to answer. He's a good prophet, okay? He's a good one, okay? Nathan in Hebrew means natan, given by God. Okay? Okay? See now, I dwell in the house of a cedar, but the ark of God dwells in content curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Arr! He missed it. He missed it. Come on, say he missed it. He missed it. This was the beginning of David's transformation from a judge, a military hero, to a king, and this was the beginning of his downfall right here. As soon as David incorporated and became comfortable in the kingship monarchy pattern, which God hates. Even those people that were associated with David missed it. That's why I am preaching like this, folks, because I don't want you to miss it. And David said... Nathan said, do all that's in your mind. Verse 4, and it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house since the days I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt. Even this day I've been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. God never wanted a temple. Temple. He wanted a sukkah. He wanted a mobile tabernacle that could move with the cloud. Hallelujah. And we poured billions of dollars into the church, into stationary structures. Verse 11. Even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I'll give them rest from their enemies. Stop right there. Now, you can challenge me. You can write me a letter, email me, talk to me later. Okay? But you better come with scriptures to show with me. What God said to Nathan, he said, you know what? I don't want anybody to build anything for me. I don't want anybody to be king. I'm content with my pattern I set up when I brought you out of the land of Egypt and Joshua and the judges, and it never changed. You wanted something different. As soon as leaders want to build something, we miss it. So we see again God saying, my perfect will is, I wanted people to cry out against their enemies. I will anoint a Gideon. I'll anoint a Deborah who will bring military justice. Hallelujah. Deliverance to my people. And they. I will live among my people in a tent of meeting. And that's all I want wife, okay, and when, when they have a union that's from God, it's the Hebrew word da'at, he knew his wife Eve, Adam knew his wife Eve, okay, whenever it was a, not a marriage ordained situation but adultery or fornication, they use the word, he lay with her. There is an intimacy between husband and wife, and that is the mystery of Jesus and the church, and Jesus is not coming back for an adulterous in church in bed with the world, yes. nor in bed with a kingship pattern. Yes. My people are destroyed for the lack of, it's the Hebrew word da'at, knowledge, intimacy. And Hosea, my people, verse chapter 4, are destroyed. There's no spot. there's no justice, there's no intimacy of God and the Lamb, therefore the birds of the tree, and the fish of the sea, the salmon, whoever else disappears. Because there's no intimacy of God in life, I'll forget your children. That's the purpose of these meetings, to get intimate with him. Hallelujah. Now, everybody thinks, well, that's the great sin David committed. That's only 50% of it. Let's study. Look at it. It says in chapter 11, uh, 11, verse 2, in the evening time he rose from his bed. What's he doing at home watching his plasma screen TV for? Why isn't this schlepper out there in battle with the other brothers that are besieging a heathen nation? Come on, folks. Because when you're a king, you no longer become a judge. You lose your military instincts. Everybody serves you because you're God's gift. David looked out the window. Kings are totally ruthless and so selfish and egotistical. Everything is for them and their kingdom. And sees a woman and says, I want her. That's why ministers fall in sin. Because they're in the kingship pattern. I don't care how much of a heart of David they've had. As soon as they migrate into that system that God has cursed, that's it. That's the end of their ministries. You say, well, we have such great worship. Well, the reason there's such good worship in some churches that are based on a kingship pattern is because God is sending some David or Davida to play the harp to drive the devils away from the king. Well, he's anointed. My pastor, my leader, is Saul was anointed too. You can listen. You can flow with that if you want. I'm flowing with the word of God. I see it. Amen. I had a pastor tell me once, he says, I'm not called to evangelize. Hmm. Really? Well, the Bible says uh, we all got the ministry of reconciliation. Have you ever read that scripture before? Oh, yeah, you want to sit at home. Oh, you want to go golfing on Saturdays instead of street witnessing, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, it says in 2 Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Mm -hmm. He's saying that to Timothy, an apostle. So you (coughs) are in a deeper revelation now? You're just a sissy. Everybody's supposed to come to your great preaching and get all these entertainments up. Everybody comes to honor the pastor, the gift from God. That is a monarchy plantation system. I want to sit with pastors and leaders that are just,
0: glory to God,
1: hallelujah. This is just a facility to keep us out of the rain. But we're going to go out there. We're going to cast devils out. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Go ye into all the world. Two-thirds of God's name is go. Let's go. Come on. Hallelujah. Let's go to battle. Okay, so David, listen, here's a man for God's own heart. He's at the apex, the climax. And if you can't keep your Levi's on, you can't be a Levite. And what will keep your Levi's on is, you know, if I pull my Levi's off and have this momentary pleasure, the devil's going to take me out or take my family out. No way. And the clock is ticking. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. That's her husband. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab, the people of the state of war. David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Uriah went out to the king's house, and a present from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants and not go down to his house. You know, the adultery was only half the sin of David. What's the other half? You know what Uriah means in Hebrew? You got it. The glory of the Lord. You got it? Uriah, Uriah in Hebrew means light or glory of the Lord. The king that killed the glory. And from that moment on, David was always on a slippery slope. His sons rose against him. He died. And every king after him, no matter how much they had a heart after God, could never punch through that system, and they always wound up falling short of the mark. If you don't have tears welling within you, We can go into this more. But the reason Uriah slept at the door of the house is because he was a bondservant. He wasn't just a servant, he was a bondservant. And the first set of laws after the Ten Commandments was domestic laws concerning slaves. Exodus 21. And... The law was if you have a male or female slave that serves you for six years and after the sixth year they say, you know, I love my master more than I love my own freedom, you shall take him to the mezuzah, the doorpost, and you shall nail his ear against the door, which there wasn't nice, a cute little earring, okay, but would leave a piece of the ear behind on the door right next to the mezuzah, the scroll, hero Israel, and you shall love the Lord your God of all your heart. And wherever that servant went or handmaiden, there would be missing a piece of their ear. And people in the marketplace or other owners would see that here is a man who had his freedom or a woman but loved their master more than their own freedom and now have given everything to that house. And that's not something you acquire, but you you read John 3.16 and believe it. Paul says, I'm a servant. But you read the end of his epistles, he says, I'm a bondservant. And this is what it means to go outside the camp bearing His approach. As a young believer, I reveled in all the things that Jesus did for me and all the promises of God. I was so excited. But as I get more matured, okay, and maturated in the things of the Spirit, I begin to realize there's a deeper realm. And it's going outside the camp bearing His reproach, loving Him more than I love even my own family, my own spiritual freedom, all the liberty... And you make a decision, like Jesus did in Gethsemane. Abba, take this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I will drink that cup of judgment. Hallelujah. That's why Peter, in the garden, pulled out his little Swiss army knife, so to speak. And whose ear did he chop off when Jesus was being arrested? The bondservant of the high priest. Why? Because all those policemen that came out were all mercenaries or hired guns, okay? And they would not have fought to the death. They only fought for money. But the high priest bonds would have fought to the death. That's why Peter went after him first. Is there people here willing to fight? You say, well, yeah, there's people that serve God. There's armor bearers. okay. If you're an armor bearer in a kingship monarchy pattern, you'll be crushed and hurt. Because kings don't know how to raise up sons. They only raise up slaves. David crushed a man who instead of going home after being in battle, stayed at the door to listen when David needed something. David unknowingly, really knowingly, killed the glory because he thought he was in right standing with God, but got into a system that defiled him. Look at this system of monarchy. When a monarch dies, who takes over the kingdom? The son. Let me ask you today, that's why ministry today, that men of God that have passed on recently, their sons take over, they don't have the same anointing, do they? I could mention names, but I don't need to. Maybe I should. So you can get it. It's impossible to make disciples under a kingship anointing. You only make slaves, not bondservants. And so we see this pattern. Go with me to Psalm 68. We could talk about this for a long time, but I want to switch gears to the New Testament church now. Are you getting something out of this? Oh! Have you ever heard of the judge In chapter 9 of Judges called Jotham Where he got up to Abimelech And he gave out a parable of the trees Let the trees come rule over us The vineyard rule over us The fig tree rule over us Remember that? So, okay, Jotham In Hebrew, Yotam His name in Hebrew means The Lord is blameless or holy He got up he was one of Gideon's sons, and one of Gideon's sons named Abimelech, which means my father is king, Abimelech, and Gideon said, I'm going to rule over you, the Lord's going to rule over you, but no, come on, the carnal flesh always wants somebody else to rule over them, no, no, so he went and killed all of Gideon's sons. That's what kings do. They will ruthlessly kill and stamp out anybody that tries to correct
0: them. That's what a
1: spiritual abuse is, folks. (laughs) And so Avimelech missed one named Jotham, Yotam. And he stood up on the hill and he said to the guys, hey, I got a parable for you our cultural society, okay, and he said, some people wanted, a, uh, you know, the fig tree or the, the vine to come rule over, and they all said no. But there was a bigger tree, in Hebrew, it's called Adat, say that, dot, And it provides great shade. Yes, we'll let the Adat, this tree, to rule over us. You think, well, what? But this guy's a judge, what, is he a poet, or is he a judge? What is this guy? They don't, we don't understand the West, but if you in Hebrew, understand that The main commodities was the olive tree, okay, the grapevine and the fig, okay. That was key staple for agricultural-based society there. But when they said, no, we'll not rule over you, but we'll let this certain tree called the Adot rule over because it provides shade, it's real big and it provides shade, it's great. But if you grow that anywhere in the vicinity of a fig tree, it will kill the fig tree. Its roots will go out and kill everything else around it. Wow. And Jotham is saying, "If you have Abimelech become king, he will kill every fruitfulness in your life." <laughs> now do you know why kings never made the Book of Hebrews? The problem is, folks, don't look at other leaders you may be mad with. Look at yourself, because every one of us have a potential for Saul inside of us. Go to the airport, see all the management books. Saul system. How dare we take leadership principles that are used in a marketplace and use them, quote, quote, to train God's leaders and make them twice the sons of Saul. Is the light coming on tonight? Are you understanding that all the prophets now, from David onward, Nathan and everybody else, who did they take on? The kingship, Elijah, Elijah, Isaiah, what were they doing? What was Jeremiah doing? So what is the true prophetic movement doing in America? Are we a bunch of court prophets prophesying what the kings want? Are we violently taking the kingdom back by force? The days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus said, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. We seize it for ourselves. What does that mean? From the time John the Baptist preached and was martyred till that time Jesus said that was probably the most two, two and a half years. The king of God was suffering violence. What was the violence going on in Jesus and John the Baptist's ministry? They were taking on the religious kingship system. When Jesus comes out of the temple, all the kids that that day are saying, Hosanna. he comes through the triumphal entry. The whole city is stirred by an earthquake. The Greek word says. He comes in, he looks in the temple, looks around and departs. He comes back the next day, curses the fig tree. It withers from the roots up. He goes in the temple, starts turning over the money changers. Come on, hallelujah. Makes a cat of nine tails and keeps everybody out during a holiday season out of the outer court. That is a supernatural miracle. Crowd control right there. A man of war. Not some shepherd with a little lamb in his hand. Come on. He came as a shepherd. He's coming back as a mighty warrior. Don't make Jesus some effeminate worker.
0: The eyes are flames of fire.
1: They come back. The chief priest said, We're going to kill him. You know what the Sadducees were? The Sadducees were just one generation, a couple generations removed from the Maccabees. The Maccabees are the one that broke off the Greek Empire, okay? And Judas Maccabeus' family set up their kingship in the temple complex, and they killed the Jewish people who would not convert to their style of religion. And they, because of their kingship pattern, the gifts or the move of the prophetic died out. That's why the Sadducees were against the resurrection of the dead and angels. Because kings can never have a sustained move of God in their midst. Jesus comes back. Peter says, Look, the fig tree you curse is withered." Jesus says, "Whoever has faith and shall speak to this mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea." And we all have taken that scripture out of context. Okay, divorced it from its context. Jesus ain't talking about your you know problem with your little wart on your hand. That's your mountain and you needs it removed. Okay, you can't pay your rent. Yes, other scriptures for provision. Okay. Jesus is talking about mountain moving faith in his context. When he comes off Bethany and he's coming down, what is in front of you? Not Mount Hood, come on. The Temple Mount. What's on the Temple Mount? What is on the Temple Mount? Thank you. <laughs> Jesus says, "Hoover speaks to this Temple Mount infrastructure to be taken up and cast in the sea." What's the fig tree have to do with it? The fig tree is the menorah, the lampstand. You see those knobby branches on the lampstand, the menorah. The fig tree is a sign of the glory of God. Jesus came in and cursed it. He's removed the fig tree from the temple complex. Jesus is walking through his churches right now, removing the lampstand. Says that in Revelation, doesn't it? Jesus comes, misses their visitation, curses the very operation of the ability of the temple complex from operating the glory of God, turns over the tables, and the chief priests want to kill him. And he later says, Whoever speaks this mountain, believe that you receive, okay? And when you stand praying, forgive, right? When you start operating in this anti kingship pattern, they'll want to put your head on a platter. And you're going to have to soak yourself on this maroon carpet, hallelujah, and get a lot of love in you, hallelujah, because you're going to have a lot of opportunities to be offended. You can leave any time you like right now, okay? Because if they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute us. The Saul system, the monarchy system always goes after those of a heart of David. you got to bathe yourself in forgiveness. How much forgiveness? Peter, yes, Lord, seven times seven. Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, 490. This is what my Jewish mind thinks. He said, 490 okay, right? I have 18 hours a day I'm awake, okay? 60 minutes, 490. That means every two minutes and 20 seconds, I have to breathe out forgiveness, okay? It's about as long as I can hold my breath without passing out, okay? Every time I breathe, I say, Lord, I forgive him. I forgive them. I release them. Come on. Hallelujah.
0: (laughs) Yes, Lord. I will obey.
1: Well, you know, I always wanted a nice message tonight. I don't want to hurt anybody, you know. Go and join the Unitarian Church then. Ezekiel 33. The trumpet. The watchman sees God bringing a sword. He shall what? Play the organ? (laughs) He shall blow the trumpet of warning. Who's he supposed to warn? Keep on reading, chapter thirty-four. The false shepherds. All we need is a grassroots movement saying, "You know what? We don't want no more of this kingship powder. We want Jesus." So what do we do? What does that attack? That attacks, first of all, the professional ministers. The modern congregational system, cookie-cutter religious system that creates these leaders, educated letterheads, okay, letter carriers, that do not understand the operation of spirit, do not understand how to get in sync Is there a kingship pattern instead of a priest? Get in sync with an open heaven because there's a service going on upstairs and God wants his kingdom come, his will be done on this earth. My job is to get out of the way, let the service going on up there download into this service. And if leaders don't allow that happen, they're not worth their salt. Get in the back of the bus. Psalm 68, let God arise, let his enemies be splattered. Yeah. <laughs> you say, what was this? I've read it before. Yeah, you've read it before. It's in Numbers 10 when the trumpets will be blown, the clouds moving, and Moses will say, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Well, brother, what's God saying? The clouds moving. Great, where's the cloud going? To war. Those who hate him flee before him. Folks, listen. Did you know there are certain people who never get saved? You know there are certain people that are enemies of God and God wants to take them out? Well, that's Old Testament. Read the book of Revelation, please. We've been duped. By a kingship pattern that just wants our money. Yeah. Their ego came and fit to the door. Mm-hmm. They got an anointing. Maybe they had a heart of David in the beginning or Davida. But something happened in their brain. And they shut down the move of the spirit. Things become
0: protectable.
1: Verse 4. Sing to God, sing praises to him. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts. Woo! The first place God begins to move is in the desert. Why? Because the Hebrew word for desert, the same word for holy place. Your holy place is your desert. God puts us in the wilderness to get the wild out of us. It goes on here and says that when God's doing something new, verse 11, the Lord gives the word, and this is King James, the company who proclaims it are a great army. New American Standard says, the Lord gives the command, the women who proclaim the good news are a great host or army. See the word host here? It doesn't mean a bunch of fat babies with wings on their back, okay? Host means army, tzvah in Hebrew. So the first thing when God does something and arises sovereignly from his throne and the shofars are being blown, he's going to scatter his enemies, hallelujah. And it's not just the Amalekites and the Amorites, okay, and the, the, the heathen, hedonistic culture we're in. It's the very enemy. His enemy is the kingship pattern. The first thing he does is sends the kings on battle. And the Saul's that come back with the bleeding of sheep. And Samuel says, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? Well, I've come back. I've obeyed God. I went and went to war. I told you to holocaust them all. But I brought back the spoils, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You've lost the kingdom. Why? Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is a sin of idolatry. And what did Saul say? He says, you're right. I did sin because I feared the people. You and I do not automatically go commit witchcraft because we're an enemy of God. It's when we get in division, two visions, we get into the fear of man, what the people say. And that gives nothing but birth of witchcraft. Quit fearing what people think. If you go to a church that you feel like is in this pattern, give them the tape. Then have them call me. And I will gently and lovingly lay out the scriptures, okay, and we will reason together, amen? And it could save thousands of people's lives, okay? Because I just had one of the largest churches in Canada. The guy who preached at the church for two weeks, the glory of God, Phil, was awesome. But if we started going to this area, and he cut me off. i have not talking to him for five years. He just called me uh, this week, weeping on the phone. The largest church in Canada. Weeping for two hours.
0: That's a glory to God.
1: He's getting it now. Hallelujah. He's been broken now. Hallelujah. He's getting out of a Saul into a David mentality again. Hallelujah. And he's going to affect thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Look at your neighbor and go, ah! <laughs> It's not me, folks. It's the, tell me what's not the word of God tonight. This is the pure word of God if you see the pattern. Yes, yes. Keep on going here. Verse 11. When God does something new, the first people to hear it are the women. Hallelujah. Come on, sister. Hallelujah. Come on. Hallelujah. The word here, company, is nikivah in Hebrew. It means it's, it's the word nikivah. Zohar is male, nikivah is female. Okay? Let's make man in our image so he made them male and female. Nikiva Zohar, okay? Nikiva, or the female tense, is the same tense for the Holy Spirit, ruach. Don't get it too mixed up. You just we see through a riddle. But the Holy Spirit is the feminine side of God. Justice, come on. War is the masculine side of God. Oh, hallelujah. The first people to hear that God's doing something new with the sisters because they got built-in radar for the, Holy, for the Holy Ghost. Come on, sisters. Come on. I'm telling you, you need to get this in. Don't let it go in when you're out there. Let it drop into here. Come on. Hallelujah. Like a quarter into a telephone booth. Come on. Hallelujah. Drop in. You are hearing something. And tell your husband to shut up if he doesn't want to go to war. Tell him to turn off the TV set. Let's do something for God. Get that lazy old beach walrus off the couch watching last year's reruns of NASCAR, okay? Let's go witness them tonight. Let's do something for Jesus. It's a shame when most of the people show up at revival meetings are women. That's not fault of men. You know why? Because the men are, under, are usually under a kingship pattern. And when you're in a kingship pattern, it castrates you spiritually. It takes away your God-given ability to conquer and subdue. Because you're being subdued by a kingship pattern. Oh, would somebody talk tonight? Okay. My wife just said, be very calm tonight, very mild. Okay, I will be. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Let's sing. Mighty fortress. No, let's not do that right now. And so men get involved in entertainment and sports, hitting a golf bar as far as I can, and then go chase it down. I don't understand that stuff anymore. <laughs> if you do some type of exercise, do something to get you back in shape, amen? Something cardiovascular, amen? Running, biking, or swimming, okay? We don't got time to play in all these sports. Entertainment enters in and attains you. God's given the men the ability to desire to conquer and subdue. So and if we can't do it in the local church setting because the leaders are in a monarchy pattern, we'll go conquer a golf ball. Come on, that's the truth. Come on, man, come on. You're gonna feel you're gonna get into that perfect will of God when you go on the streets, hallelujah, and lay hands on that kid, amen. Checking out your groceries and all those demons barf out of him, hallelujah. That's better than winning a racquetball tournament. Come on, hallelujah! And so the women are hearing something new. We gotta listen. Say this: listen to the sisters. I don't hear it loud enough. Listen to the sisters. sisters. Hallelujah. Verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. Whenever God does something new and the sisters are hearing something new, God's staging place for his Calvary, mechanized Calvary, is at a place of holiness. Hallelujah. I'm getting intoxicated tonight. (laughs) Hallelujah. Now, verse 18 is the key for the entire New Testament church. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captive thy captives. Thou hast received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that God may dwell there. Does anybody know where that's quoted in the New Testament? Ephesians 4. The entire government of the New Testament church leadership is based on one scripture that Paul quoted. But if you understand all the context of it, now you understand why he quoted it. Ephesians 4. Here we go, folks. (laughs) Verse 7. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he is Ephesians 4 and verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts unto men. That's a quotation from God arising, going to war, Psalm 68, right? And verse 11, and what are these gifts? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. Stop right there. Don't think of anything else. Just think about the Bible right now. Psalm 68 is talking about judges being raised up for war. So if we carry that through without listening to all the stuff we've listened to in our Christianity and understand that the pure scriptures does not mean it's the kingship pattern but a judge's pattern. So therefore, the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers are New Testament Judges or champions of war. So, this is the pattern of the New Testament church. The people cry out. God anoints a man or woman to be a judge, military leader, apostolic, prophetic. Ability to teach, pastor, evangelize. And we rally to that point. Hallelujah. And that is the pattern God chose and he never changed. We're the ones who wanted the king. We're the ones who didn't want to go to battle. Send the king to battle. So Jesus appears on the scene. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Direct quotation from Isaiah, talking about justice, God raising up judges once again. Are you catching it? Jesus anoints the 12. The 70, go out. Cast out devils, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, bring justice to the afflicted. That is the pattern of the New Testament church. Anything that does not bring us into battle and do deliverance against the enemy is nothing more but stinking religion and the monarchy pattern. We come together. I'm sitting here before a bunch of F-18 Hornet pilots, okay, in the belly of the USS Enterprise, hallelujah, and we're about to send you out this flight deck, turn this birdcage into the wind, and get you off the deck, and go out there and have church out there. Hallelujah. <laughs> you want to go on, or you just want to go home? It's up to you, I'll do whatever you want. So we see the early church doing this. Oh, but things, the gifts of the Spirit slowed down, screeched to a halt when Constantine said, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's bring all those secret groups in the catacombs out and let's meet in the beautiful facilities I'll build for you. Oh, by the way, I got pastors for you. Oh, they used to be, you know, priests of Jupiter. That's okay now. We'll make them, they're professional clergy. They represent me. Because Christianity is the official religion now. And we go head-first tailspin into the dark ages.
0: Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. So
1: now, God is raising up a revived remnant that have been living in caves. That have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed her on the lips. Hallelujah. That said, there must be more. Hallelujah. And you're feeling God's arising with inside. Hallelujah. And I can't fault the people that have left churches and started home groups and all those things. I understand where they're coming from. But I, I'll say this to them also for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. <laughs> you can get out of this ditch and screech over in this other ditch. You say, well, Brother Scott." God. Let me read this to you, help you what a New Testament judge is. God has always had his specialist, whose chief concern has been the moral breakdown, the decline in the spiritual health of a nation or the church. Such men were Elijah, Malachi, and others. Who appeared at critical moments in history to reprove, rebuke, and exhort in the name of God and righteousness? Such men or women were likely to be drastic, radical, possibly at times violent. And the curious crowd that gathered to watch him or her work soon branded them as extreme, fanatical, and negative. <laughs> in a sense, they were right, for they were single minded. Severe, fearless, and these were the qualities the circumstances demanded. They shocked some, frightened others, alienated not a few. I want to be like Gideon. Pull up at night with a winch in the back of my four-wheel drive and pull down all those idols. Hallelujah. Don't you want to do something radical for Jesus? Don't you feel the spirit of justice burning in you tonight? We can go on, but we'll go on tomorrow with the rest of this. There's, folks, we're just in chapter one. We haven't gotten even going yet. But we have to change your thinking to the Bible pattern. So we see here that for the, these apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, okay, evangelists, are actually, from Paul's understanding by the Spirit, New Testament judges, champions. Delivers. The next word shows us again for the equipping of the saints. Now let's talk about church real briefly. The first Greek word for church used is called ecclesia. Ecclesia, in ancient Greek language, was used by Alexander the Great when he conquered a known area, that he would send his generals, let's say Ptolemy, to go into Egypt, okay, and to Hellenize it. So they would go into an area they conquered, and he would send his military leaders and call them the Ecclesia, the called out ones who went to Hellenize an area. So the meaning of church in its original form, that we are God's champions, who deliverers, hallelujah, with the spirit of justice on us. The spirit of the Lord's upon me. Come on, hallelujah. Because he's anointed me to bring deliverance to the captives. That's judges. show team, hallelujah. And we're called not to go in hev- Hellenize an area, but heavenize an area. Yeah. And we need some mobile tabernacles that walk around this city of Portland, amen, that know how to live up in their open heaven and let God do everything else. That's the house of God, that's the Bethel where we need to live. Because God likes to go to war, hallelujah. I know, I feel the same way. Tilt, tilt. It's good. It makes sense now, doesn't it? When you see it. But later in the third, fourth century, the church took on a new word called circa, which means circus. That a man would stand and perform on the stage, it's usually the Greek dramas, perform in an amphitheater, and everybody would sit down and watch. And the largest Christian event in America, every summer, is in my home city, Atlanta, Georgia. At the Georgia Dome, every July, a big mega event. Everybody shows up, hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, the mayor welcomes them. And she's still a lesbian and still hasn't even changed. Oh, we welcome them. And we're going to have entertainment for the whole family. We're going to bring elephants and clowns. And we're going to have a three-ring circus for the family. And America's best attempt... With anointed musicians and anointed preaching, anointed men and women of God, and everybody sitting there, we keep on thinking: if we just pray more, we just fast more, we just worship more, we just abandon more, something is going to happen. And of course, we feel the maintenance anointing of God. But if we're two or three gathered His name, He's in our midst, okay. But the mild Shekinah glory—that's to hover and live among us—does not stay, because He will not anoint a kingship pattern that people won. Period. Let's conclude with Isaiah chapter 4. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. You say, where are you going for, Scott? Isaiah 4. I found a scripture. I'm like a, my Labrador retriever. I got a hold of a bone, and you can get out of my mouth. You can try to break my teeth and twist my head. I ain't letting go of this bone. <laughs> Hallelujah. And it's found in Isaiah 4, which is a future reference to the glory of God in the church. We've not yet seen it, but I'm going for it. Because I found it in the Bible. It's for us. Wipe away dispensationalism out of your brain, the theology of man. I'm living for Isaiah 4 and verse 5. Well, verse 4, chapter. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 4 as we conclude tonight. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of what? And the spirit of burning. Woo! Then the Lord will create, Barah, it's the same word used in Genesis 1. The Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, that's us, and over her assemblies, plural, a cloud by day. Even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be what? A canopy. The Hebrew word for canopy is hoopa. My wife and I in the Jewish wedding were married under a hoopah. God's people are going, Lord, show me your glory, and he's saying, Marry me. Yeah, that's right. because the glory cloud shows up. <laughs> Not over the temple, we're the temple. Not over a building, over these gathering places of the elect, these New Testament judges, the Shekinah glory docile among us. Hallelujah. And over the top of that is the wedding canopy. And verse 6, and there will be a shelter, a sukkah, a tabernacle to give shade from the heat by day, refuge, protection from the storm and the rain. Hallelujah. And look at chapter 5 and verse 1. What does it sound like? Chapter 5 and verse 1 of Isaiah. Sing now, my beloved. What does it sound like? Song of Solomon, doesn't it? That's a mistranslation. The Latin Vulgate put in the Song of Solomon. It's not called the Song of Solomon. It's called Shir Hashirim in Hebrew, which means the song above all other songs. The highest song in the intimate place of God is the bridal music, Shir Hashirim. You know what the song of my beloved is in Hebrew? Dun, 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 dun. wish my wife was here. Hallelujah. We start doing some Israeli dancing together. Hallelujah. <laughs> beloved. I'm my beloved. My beloved is mine. The word beloved in Hebrew is David. David was in that place of bridal intimacy with God when he was a judge. When he became a king, he ended adultery.
0: Do-do-do-do-do-do. do 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 do, do, do. do, 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 do. See, How can you say that? God
1: said it. They rejected me. They want a king. <laughs> this is where we're heading, folks. It's not the temple. It's the tabernacle of David. <laughs> do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. Blessed be the Lord God that teaches my fingers for battle, my hands for war. Yes.
2: Hallelujah.
1: Let God arise, let his enemies be splattered. Yes. Hallelujah. Are you getting it tonight? Hallelujah.
0: You get up in the morning. Hallelujah, Lord. Nothing like this fresh smell of napalm in the morning. Hallelujah. <laughs>
1: You're not praying, oh, God, give me, give me, give me. you got God, what can I do for you today? You have problems, okay? You have things leeching on you when you get off of your life. Go out and water others. You'll be watered yourself. So we're not coming in here just to be a big dead sea, okay? We're going to come out here, be our Jordan. Let's get out there. And then when you come to church, After a night of street witnessing on Saturday night, you come to church, it's like, I don't even like it when guest speakers come. I want to hear from my apostle or the leader, set leader, judge over this church. Amen? Because God has set him to feed me. You're sitting on the front row and he's preaching, you're preaching, more, more, more. Lord, release to your people this anointing. It's not necessarily you're doing something new, you're reclaiming what we've lost.
2: (laughs) Thank you for it, Papa.
0: Thank you for being a part of Rivers in the Desert International, listening to our message today to you. Perhaps you have a friend, perhaps yourself are sitting there and wondering, where would I go if I died today? We'd like to give you a great privilege of praying with us and leading you to a knowledge of Jesus the Messiah. The Bible says if any man or woman would call upon the name of Jesus, they would be saved. The Greek word for saved is healed, delivered. It's a wonderful promise. You're there now in your automobile, perhaps at home listening. Go ahead and pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to forgive me of my sins. The Bible says, if anybody would call upon your name, they would be saved. I'm calling today, Lord. Save me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Take all of my sins and cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. Father, I'm coming running home to you now. In your name I pray, amen.
1: If you'd like to contact us in our ministry, you may do so by writing us at Rivers in the Desert, P.O. Box 2788 in Alpharetta, Georgia, 30023 in the United States of America.